It's the Life After High School Podcast. Mike, brother. Cheers, man. Cheers, man. Appreciate the monster. Appreciate you uh, doing this, man. Finally made it out. Mm-hmm. That's hard. But, um... Yeah, man, that's super. That's super fun. You know, for what do you weigh? Like, you're a bigger guy, right? Yeah. So yeah. right now, I mean, with COVID, I definitely put on some weight. I'm sitting at about two thirty-two, uh, but pre-COVID, I was about two twelve. Okay, so you're very quick for somebody your size. Dude. <laughs> when we were racing a couple weeks ago, I was thinking about like, beat me, and I was like, I was hoping for like a redemption uh, sprint, but it just didn't end up lining up because you won, and then I went in, and then I won. And then you went in, and then so I sat out, and then we just did this crisscross. I don't think I forgot to go twice. <laughs> so yeah, was, yeah, that was upsetting. But I'll uh, I'll put my ego aside so we can do this uh, conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah. So <laughs> me too. I'm sure, our audience will too. Yeah. But with that being said, what uh, take us through kind of from your transition leaving post secondary school and high school to kind of where we are now and how we how we kind of got there. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a pretty wild journey. Um, you know, they always say like you, you think you know best when you're young and then when you get old you realize you don't know anything at all, right? Yeah. So um, going through high school I sort of made the decision that I wanted to be a music teacher. I was a big musician, it was something I was very passionate about. Yeah. Um, and I was a good student, you know, sitting in like the eighties mostly. Um, and I got into Carleton to go to the music program and I remember on my graduation day in high school my music teacher who was like a mentor for me, Mr. Gordon, he like took me aside and he was like, Do you love music? And I'm like, Man, obviously like, yeah, like that's yeah, what I'm yeah. gonna do and he said, Don't teach it. He's like, there's no money what? in it. Oh yeah, he said, there's there's no money in the in the school system for it anymore. It's become sort of a bird course that people take because you have to take an arts credit. Um, and I think what he was trying to get into was like, it's gonna like you're passionate about it, that will die quickly. And I was like, it'll be fine, right? So yeah, young, you think like ah, no, where's that's crazy, bro. What was it? Uh, the drums, eh? Yeah, yeah. I've been playing drums my whole life. Played trumpet for six or seven years. Taught myself guitar, and then every musician right. sort of knows piano because you learn it along the way. You learn it once you go theory of everything yeah so yeah so I, I went to Carleton um, that whole experience was completely wild it's cool if I talk about like the yeah, university experience because this is do. something I wish somebody would have told me this so when I registered for university I didn't have anybody doing it with me I didn't have like anyone guiding me through the whole process like computer program that kind of yeah and, like I didn't have a friend to walk me through it there was no like no there was no help at all so uh, I made the mistake and I'm just putting this out there for anyone who has to do this on their own you have to register for both semesters <laughs> so <laughs> I only registered for the first one. I uh, only registered for fall. So I like you get your list based off your program of what your compulsory credits are and how many uh, electives you're allowed to have and I only registered for fall semester. And I got a phone call from Carleton like mid-August and they're like, "Oh, like what school are you going to in, in the winter?" And I was like, "Well, yours, right?" Yeah, like, what's going on? It was like months ago I just filled this out. And they're like, oh. "Yeah, so you didn't register and as you would imagine most classes have a cap, so they're like you kind of get what's left over." And Come on, man! It was bad. It was a lot of courses. Not in a million years would I have chosen to take ever. Yeah, really? No, like just things that were not my wheelhouse. It was like I took like a, a space physics course, psychology issues and film and stuff. And like these were not things that I was overly issues interested in, which I thought would be cool, right? I thought we yeah, you think I, those all sound pretty cool. Issues in film turned out to be um, a course on a lot of foreign films that were going over. Like it, it was relevant, exciting information, but it was just it was a, an afterthought class. The teacher was brand new, had never taught this course. English wasn't his first language, um, so there was a huge gap in in the language between the students no. and the teacher. It was a very, very tough experience. Come on. So my first year of university oh, was was man. very eye opening, um, and I turned nineteen 
in November of my first year. So now I'm in a big city. Like my, my Elliott Lake has yeah. eleven thousand people, maybe five hundred around my age. Yeah. Carleton has a population of twenty six thousand people between the ages of nineteen and twenty five. Just at the university, on just campus. at the university, ridiculous, so, crazy experience, very eye opening, and, and that yeah. took a long time to sort of get used to. Um, so going through my years in university, um, you know, started off on academic probation because of those courses, wasn't really taking yeah. it seriously, um, and just like didn't really have money. Like I was getting about six hundred and fifty bucks a month from support, right. and none of my tuition was covered. My dad made great money, but has five kids. So he doesn't make that great yeah, money. He, he five he kids through the row. Yeah, at the end of that budget, at the yeah. end of the month. And OSAP doesn't care how many kids. They just see the wage, right? So, yeah. um, with no, well, man, it, it's a system that needs to be fixed. When we had yeah. that temporary period of like free post-secondary, I was like, finally, but that's gone. Hopefully one day. Um, but yeah, so I would get 650 bucks a month. I mm -hmm. paid 500 in tuition. Yeah. Which left me with 150 bucks for food, books, and obviously the liquor store. Just beer. So yeah, just beer. Never, just Guinness, bro. Yeah, never just bought Guinness. a book. Didn't buy a textbook until my third year of university. Just couldn't afford it. Wow. Um, and then after that, absolute nightmare of an experience trying to you know live off of a hundred dollars a month basically for food. Um, my second year of university, I got a job. I was working at the source selling cell phones, nice. working 40 hours a week while being a full-time student, so not going to class. Um, yeah, that's yeah. The quotes, yeah. Tough to do, right? Oof. Because I mean, class—you can always take extra classes and, and do what you need to to make it up. But mm -hmm. like, not having money became a very big obstacle. So I needed yeah. to fix that. And then uh, my third year, I finally figured it out, man. And it was yeah. like, I was—I was thinking about dropping out of school. It was embarrassing, like from being like an A student to like barely getting, you know, passing grades and being on academic yeah. probation and being in a new city, all this stuff. A lot. It's a lot of change, a lot of new. Way too much. Yeah. Um, and like, you're young, like you're 20, 21, and of course you're like, at that age, you're like, I'm an adult, and now at 30, I'm like, I'm still a kid. Still like, until I'm six there. or seven years old, yeah. I'm going to be a kid forever. Like, I, yeah. you're just, you're figuring it all out, right? Um, so third year, I got a job as a waiter, uh, which means I was working four-hour shifts, and you're making tips, and it was in, in a busy part of Ottawa, and I had a teacher... Uh, a prof named Alexis Luco who just like out, yeah. was the best professor I ever had. She cared about her material. It wasn't stuff she read about. She traveled. She she was very into like the musical history, so all the oh. different eras. So she had gone to like Vienna and she had gone to Jeez. all these different areas where we were studying and just brought a level of passion to what she taught. And that like brought me back into being uh, a learned student, like wanting to to figure wow. out how to grow. Right. That's really cool. So that saved it. I ended up having to take an extra year in university, but all said and done, got through, got my degree, right moved on, on from there. Right on. So graduating, I taught music for about six weeks. And in retrospect, my teacher couldn't have been more right. Um, it was like he was with me every day of those yeah. six weeks being like, I told you so. I told, told you so. so. Um, you know, for me growing up, playing music was like... It was second nature. It's what I wanted to do. At three years old, I asked my mom if I could start playing drums. Oh, wow. So I'm teaching drums, and I'm realizing, like, these kids don't practice. These kids don't really care. They're not excited. They don't want to learn a song. It was babysitting. It was parents needed something between 3.30 and 5. Ooh. It's fairly inexpensive yeah. comparative to an actual babysitter. That's a big program. Yeah. Um, so, and like, like like he said, it just it, it made me stop playing music. I stopped caring about it, and that was that was it for me. I quit that job, and I was just like, I, I can't do it. Um, and that became sort of the pivotal point in my life. That's when everything that I'm doing now 
um, sort of took seed, but at the time it was stuff I, I had no business doing. So this is when I got into personal training. Right on, okay. Um, when I was working at The Source, I had a, a colleague named Evan, and him and I were the top salesmen there. Nice. After I left The Source, he got into personal training, and I went to go to my music thing, and I, I think at the time we lived together. Nice. Or we started living together shortly after, but he, he's, when I quit music, he's like, you should just come do personal training. It's just like selling cell phones, but you're selling fitness. Yeah. Sounds easier to sell. I mean, you kind think? of. Like, you you come in with 500 bucks and I give you a phone, right? This is yours. Personal training, you come yeah. in with hopes and dreams. More of an saying, investment. Yeah, for yeah. 10 grand, we'll see if I can get you there, you know? So it, it was tough. Um, but I shouldn't have been a personal trainer. No? We, At that time you realized that? Or yeah, that for sure. Yeah. Like, it, it's, especially now that I've come to take like fitness more seriously and like I've gone through the changes and I've learned so much along the mm -hmm. way. There's a lot of flaws in this industry right now. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm an example of somebody who shouldn't have gone in but yielded the benefit, took it seriously, grew through it, and then became somebody who I feel is, is adequate to do this job. Right on. Yes. But the downfall, I think, to personal training right now is it's getting... It, yeah, it's... <laughs> It's very much a stepping stone job for a lot of people. It's not necessarily a career. Um, the same way like waiting tables was back in the 80s. You, know, you graduate, you needed to make some money before you got to your real job, so you go and you wait tables because it's good money. So you think that's what personal training is today? Well, well I mean, the bar for entry is, is like a four-day, $300 course from CanFit, right? Dude, so I can do that tomorrow. Yeah, 100%. And anyone can do it. And it's, it's not to say that you're not going to help people, because they talk about this all the time in the big box gyms, but... The, the purpose of personal training isn't weight loss, it isn't goal getting, it's accountability, mm -hmm. right? Like gyms are smart, they've done the psychological research to realize that 60 bucks a month and for a membership is like the sweet spot where it's enough for them to make good money but it's not enough for people to like take two hours to fill out paperwork to cancel and quit. Mm -hmm. So like you'd be shocked at the percentage yeah. of gyms, like their, their clientele that actually don't go into the gym at all. It's north of fifty percent. Are you kidding, buddy? It, because like, no. If you make thirty bucks an hour, yeah. and it's sixty bucks a month, and it's going to take you a couple hours, that's the rationale. Well, maybe I'll go next month. It's not worth me going in and having that's a conversation. That's sixty bucks. You know, I worked worked overtime this week. Yeah, one overtime hour covers it. You know. Yeah. So it, oh, like, man. they're very smart about that. And sixty bucks a month, like when you know what you're doing in a gym, that's great. When you don't know, yeah. you know, people walk in and, and they have like the, the big wide eyes because you walk in and there's, you know, big heavy strong guys doing deadlifts and you got fit chicks who are doing their thing and yeah. everyone everyone seems to know what's going on and then when you have that gen pop person who's not familiar, they just Very walk right back out. Yeah. And then you have gyms that have like pizza days and stuff like that. Like there was a gym in Ottawa called Fit for Less that they're owned by Good Life. It's 10 bucks a month. Right on. Okay. Um, but... They have a pizza day every month. So there are people straight up just paying 10 bucks a month. You go eat a full pizza, you came up four bucks ahead. Like, it's not even about fitness, right? Anyways, I digress. Uh, yeah, dude, it kind of has like a reverse effect on that. Well, it's how it seems you keep, counterproductive, right? It's how you keep your clients. Um, so, yeah, like looking back, I don't want to say it's regret, but, um, you know, the first six months of me being a personal trainer, yeah. you've, you're very much a fraud. And it, it, it's a tough line because anything you do for the first time, yeah. you're going to be bad. But now, I'm going to contradict that by saying what makes you feel like a fraud in that case. Like, for example, if I were to get into it and I have like the six and whatever, I'm six months into it, not even a couple months in, I have all this time of, I've gone through a bodybuilding phase. 
not a successful one. <laughs> I've gone through a bodybuilding phase, I've gone through a strength training phase, I've gone through, like, played a lot of sports, so I was able to, like, work out to make, like, my basketball skills better, right? Or make me more efficient at track and field, or more efficient at jiu-jitsu, and stuff like that. So all those things kind of give you that background of, okay, I what's applicable for this person, right? Yeah. So where do you think... That's where I would just say I contradict that a bit. Where would you say that's like you're like no, it's first bit like where's the where's the fraud come in for you? Well, for me personally, like when I became yeah. a personal trainer, I was 250 pounds, 35 percent body fat. I didn't know what the eccentric of a movement was. I didn't know what periodization was. I knew very little, if anything at all, and had very little experience in the gym. Oh, okay. Even learning that stuff, like I remember when I took the CanFit program, the instructor kept saying through the entirety of the lessons, this is what CanFit wants you to know. And at one point, like, we're like, why do you keep saying that? And he was like, because this isn't real. Like, this isn't the science. What's an example of one? Talking about, uh, like, what do we use? It's, um, we use, like, RPE, like, rate of perceived exertion. Yeah. And there's one, I think it's called the bar, I can't remember what it's called, but it was, like, on a scale of 6 to 20. And what it was based off of was a heart rate. So six would be 60 beats per minute, 20 would be 200. 200 yeah. The Borg, I think it was called. It was just, okay. there was things like that. It was talking about, you know, doing sets of 15 versus doing sets of 10. All of the periodization and all the, the expectations they had, they just weren't practical. Okay. They, they didn't make a lot of sense. They seemed overly complicated. And they're assuming a level of aptitude in a client that really doesn't exist for the most part. No. So, so what I would say no. with what you were saying, where you know you have all this background, yeah. I'll tell you right now, in six years of personal training, I think I trained two athletes, like and, competitive athletes. Well, people not even like, competitive. Just, people who compete against other people, kind of. Thing, yeah, or? people who came to get a personal trainer for the sake of improving their sport. Right on. Other than that, it's moms and dads. In six have, years, man, because that's what personal training is, man. It's when I got in, I'm thinking like I'm getting athletes, I'm yeah. getting bodybuilders. They already know what they're doing. That's a good point. Yeah. The average person is a mom or a dad who's you know put on 30, 40 pounds. You know their back hurts, their knees are getting sore. They're getting all these osses and itises yeah. throughout the day, and they just want to feel better. So from that, so all of your experience, how do you fix the mom? How do you say, okay, well in my jujitsu background, mom doesn't do jujitsu. Yeah, she chases relate. a four-year-old around. Ah. So and and that's where I started to get the like the fraudulent feeling was. I wasn't giving them anything that was really rooted in their life. I was giving like athletic stuff or this, the, the good, the good life stuff that they wanted. Yeah. Right? So um, as I went through, you, as a personal trainer, you have to take courses every year to keep your insurance. And, oh, and really? so are they different ones? Or? Yeah, yeah. And okay, it's right your on. choice what That's you cool take. And, and it's important, right? This, as we've seen, like every six months, yeah. you know, it was Beachbody, and then it was Atkins, and then it was the the what's it, the Zone, and now it's Keto, yeah. and it's always something, right? We're always evolving, yeah. and it's because this is more complicated than we can really understand. Very much so, yeah. But it's also really simple. Um, the stuff that's been around is, and has been around forever is like that because it works. Right. So you have to take these certifications. And it wasn't until I started learning postural assessment, um, programming for general population, um, how to progress and regress movements to make sure that you met the aptitude of the client. That's when I started to feel like I was personally training somebody. You know what I mean? Like within the definition of the title, you are general training. You're doing everybody the same way until you gain this aptitude. Even though it's specifically labeled, the career label is personal training. Correct. We are different people. We train differently. We train for different things. 
our bodies are similar, but they're different. Yeah. You know what I mean, so it's you have to make it personal. But you saying that there's this like cookie cutter method for everybody is just well, I, disappointing I, a little bit. I'll I'll tell you this right now. If if anyone listening becomes a new member at Good Life and they want to do their intro program with the personal trainer, I'll save you the visit right now. They're going to program you 52 weeks. It's going to be eight weeks of what they call a, a foundation or a functional base, or they're going to yeah. teach you basic movements. Then they're going to put you through hypertrophy. That's basic bodybuilding. Mm -hmm. This is going to be your, you know, sets of ten. You're working specific body groups. Right. Then they're going to put you through a conditioning phase. They call it a burn, which is going to be more your circuit style. And then they do a strength phase for six weeks, and it's almost identical for every single person. And then they do phase two for the rest of the year, which you skip the foundation. You just re-go through bodybuilding, conditioning, and strength. Switch it up. And it's the exact same thing for every single person. And it's not because it doesn't work. But if I'm a personal trainer and you and I are the two clients like how are you gonna get the same program as me I'm 40 50 pounds heavier than you yeah. I my background is not in jiu-jitsu and basketball yeah. it's in what pizza like I just we would not have the same I mean, strength training but well and that's you know, that's like a newer thing, thing right <laughs> yeah strength training yeah, power lifting like, like pizza I was like oh you and I went down the different roads there brother <laughs> listen I'm saying like seven that's years ago oh, okay yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so what it is now is you got a lot of kids who are you know 19 and 20. They're fresh out of high school. Maybe they're in university. They want to look good. Well, they want to look good, and they they need a job that pays well, and it does. Like it does, yeah. It does at that age. Now I would never be able to live off the money that I made because most gyms are a 40-60 split. So they take 60 percent. You take the 40. Yeah. You know they're all commission based, which is nice. You're making 10 percent on any contract, so a $10,000 contract is a thousand dollars in your pocket before right, Justin okay, gets yeah. his cut. Um, so it makes good money, um, but the expectations of the job are really high. Uh, I worked for a company in Ottawa called Mobody. It was uh, it, oh, nice, dude. Which one? Uh, the, so I opened the club in Nepean. Oh, I was right part on, of the dude. Opening crew there. Down and, the road from where I live. Yeah, yeah. So it was right a beautiful on. club. Great, like we had great culture at our club, and that was always the conversation. Um, we had a great boss who. He actually worked with me at Good Life. He's the reason I got into shape. When I first started working at Good Life, he gave me a program. He's like, if you ever need a belt, you know, I got a belt up there. If you this have is questions. for you. He he's saved. He got me. He got me fit and That's changed good. everything for That's me. That's good. That's awesome. And he ended up being my boss at the body. Right on. And okay. when we started there, it was you know a year and a half of just like employment bliss. Everyone was eager to learn, eager to get better. Everyone sort of relied on each other and, and learned from each other. Um, but at the same time, like you start getting young kids in there, it's a stepping stone job. So you start having trainers who are coming and going really quick. And th this is my, my, my plight with this industry is because it's so easy to get into, it's so easy to get out of and, yeah. and you leave clients high and dry. And if you, like I said, I went through a six month period where I felt like I wasn't delivering the very best. If you have a trainer who's only training for six, seven months, they're, they're leaving people's money and, and their goals in, in the wayside, right? And, th yeah. and that's what I don't like about it. I think that, like I said, I'm fortunate that I got there. I shouldn't have been hired, but the ultimate difference is having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Right. And what I realized, Big difference. Oh, yeah. Like, what I realized at a young age was, the, you know, the cliche as it is, the more I learn, the less I know, and, and I love that. It's crazy. That's true, yeah. And, and you have to have that in everything that you do in life, but mm -hmm. in, in this industry, you know, as soon as you think you've learned everything you need, you know all the courses that you know, and everything's fixed in stone, you're, you're just not good at your job anymore. No. And then that's when, like, 
trails into a really bad like mental state and you think you know everything and then you get an ego because you think you know everything 100%. and then you just get further and further and further away from that growth mindset yeah or and capability to have one and unfortunately like you can teach anybody how to assess you can teach anybody how to train mm -hmm. but a growth mindset is something that I think most people are inherently born with I think you know there it's it exists on a spectrum of growth and fixed mm -hmm. but if you're heavily on the fix, it's hard to get outside of that. It is, and, yeah. and ego becomes the thing, right? I know everything. Well, that's a tough person to teach otherwise, right? And in this industry, what you know today is completely wrong tomorrow. So that that's the hard part, right? You're you're just trying, you're just they're just trying to get trainers because they make a lot of money off of them. They assess their uh, you you have to work out as a personal trainer. Obviously, somebody who looks good is going to get more attention. Yeah. Um, that's human nature, but that has nothing to do with their passion for it, their desire to learn more. Yeah. It's like I said, it's the downfall of the industry. I wish that it would change, and I think going forward it will, especially post COVID. Yeah. Um, but that was that was my plight with it through the through the entire thing. And like I said, I shouldn't have been one, but I found myself through it. I was right. able to sort of pay my penance for the six months where I felt that wasn't enough. Yeah. And going forward, like, I no longer feel imposter syndrome in this strictly because I never feel like I know enough. So I, I, I don't, I think an imposter is somebody who, who's learned the material and can't apply it. There is no learned the material in this. No. The material is constant. So as long as always you're staying. Always developing, always new information, always new studies, right? Yep. As long as you're staying enriched in it, you can't be an imposter because you're still a student. And that growth and fixed mindset, oof. And I was like, as you were saying, quote, yeah, that one, I got one for you. I was watching this video, and the guy says something, and he repeats it. So it's like a 20-minute video, and I listened to it, and I was like, oh. And it was like, ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. <laughs> and then he follows it back, and then he like doubles down. He's like, he's like, let me say that again. And then he's like, and then he says it, and he's like, pride is the burden of a foolish person. Yeah. It was just like the pairing of it in the message he was sending. I was like, you know, makes a lot of sense. Like, you remove the ego from a lot of things, and that's something that I think is, it's very easy. And I found myself recently, not so much having trouble with it, but being aware of when I could take one route versus when I could take the other. And I'm sitting there and just, whatever situation happened a while ago, doesn't really matter, but I could have been... I took a very right way. I was like, man, that's a lesson I had to learn the hard way. That's it. That's the only way I could look at it. And I was like, okay, I wasn't going to learn this just by somebody telling me. I was going to learn this by getting my ass kicked in the situation. And I'm like, well, I couldn't do anything. I was helpless. It was like a failure moment. But I'm like, that's perfect because next time that's not happening. Or it's going to be a bit further I push. I get pushed to that level. But with that being said, immediately I was like, okay, you know, like I had to learn that the hard way. But then 20 minutes later, I was like, motherfucker, why did he... And I was like, no, don't think that way. Don't think of like, well, he did it, or you're, don't put yourself, don't say something like, oh, you're taller than the person, or like, you're better than the situation because of this, or that person doesn't know as much as you. Like, don't find a way to put them down just to build yourself up. And I think that's like, there's a way that people need to find that switch, and I think I've come to terms with that, where I've done a lot of things, I've seen a lot of things, I've met a lot of people, but even in all that, like, I, I'm a firm believer that I have the growth mindset that you're talking about, but I still find myself, and I'm sure people do, and you might, who knows, going, like, battling 
battling the devil inside, going like, okay, well, you know, oh, oh man, you know what, I'm smarter than him, so it doesn't matter. I'm like, but saying that doesn't make me smarter than, than the situation or the person. All you're doing is proving the growth mindset, though. The idea is you've never reached the terminal end. So the battles are inherently part of the experience of growing, right? right. Like, I hate using cliches, but I'm so full of them. You know, the the mighty oak tree comes from the tiny acorn. Yeah. It, it's not supposed to be easy, no. and it's the ability to identify that battle and find betterment through that experience that is part of growing. Yeah. If you succumb to either side, if you say one day, you know what, I'm never going to have those feelings again. That's a fixed mindset. You're mm. using absolutes to define the way that you think about things. Interesting. It's it's so important to realize that. How you feel, what you go through, the mental battles and stuff, they're not good or bad, they just are, and it's the decisions that you make with them. But if you think, like, I have a good mental mind frame about stuff, you're not accepting the downfalls of humanity. We, mm -hmm. we do feel, you know, shame when we don't do well. We do feel, you know, frustration when we should have done better and somebody beats us. But that constant narrative that you have with yourself is growing, and that will never end. Because if you're growing, the challenges grow with you. Yeah. Right. If you're the biggest fish in a small pond, you have nothing to worry about, but you're also not probably going anywhere. No. You want to keep getting into a bigger pond and having bigger problems and finding new definitions of struggle for yourself to overcome. Right. And that, like, you know, I'm sure you've heard about David Goggins. Like, yeah. that's what he's always talking about, right? Being, being unordinary amongst the un unordinary. Mm -hmm. Always, uh, what's his thing? Um, uh, going through the struggles, um, being uncomfortable. And how important it is for growth it's that you are uncomfortable and doing the things that you hate doing. Because that's what I've realized through this. When I was driving over, I was trying to think about, like, you know, what, what am I going to say that's going to be any different from anybody else? And if I've realized, like, when I got into personal training, I didn't think it was a long-term thing. I was so uncomfortable and I was so embarrassed about everything I did. At one point, I, oh, man, this story sucks. Right so when, on. I, when I first started training, get into it. Um, when I first started training, my buddy Tim, who gave me the program, gave me the belt. He said, "If you're ever doing a back day, wear a belt." And I went. I was doing a back day, and I'm brand new. Like I don't know these exercises. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. So I went up. I got his belt, and I was doing an exercise. I didn't know where else I could do it except in the personal training section. We had like a little area for the trainers, and I was doing an exercise with not very much weight. And I put the belt on, and like trainers started laughing at me. And like one of the trainers, it was either the trainer or his client, was like, "Does that belt come in pink?" Like. It was so bad, man. I was so ah. broken, right? But I felt like I didn't belong. And so uncomfortable, so foreign. I pushed through. Now, like, I describe myself as a personal trainer, even though I haven't done the job in two years. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I'll, I do, like, a manual therapy, fascial stress therapy. Yeah. And I always find ways to tie back to the stuff that I learned and the stuff that I coached in personal training. Seven years ago, there's no way I would have been doing that. I was so uncomfortable. But who I am and the way that I look at my life now seven years later couldn't be further from what it was back then. And I attested to going through those periods of discomfort, having the growth mindset, finding ways to overcome those things. Um, and same thing with powerlifting. Um, getting into it, it, it was one of those things, I told you about the periodization that they used. So I learned how to move, I did the bodybuilding program, I got fit. Uh, for the conditioning, I did uh, a Spartan race. Nice, And dude. then nice. after that, I was like, oh buddy, it was unreal. Um, and then I was like, okay, I, strength is the next thing. And a colleague of mine was a powerlifter. He said, well, I've already signed you up for a meet, so we're going to do this. And let's right, go. Did it for me. Heavy ass weight. At the at the onset of it, yeah. I hated everything about the training because I went from bear in mind I'm 22, I think yeah. at the time. 
I went from chasing the pump, sets of ten, looking good, feeling good. good. Oh, You're yeah. doing the you know the disco muscles and the vanity lifts to doing <laughs> the most monotonous, repetitive sets of five, sets of heavy three. sets of five, and just constantly, I can only imagine. Oh, like Thank well, relative to like the strength point, like that's the yeah. thing about strength training, right? It's, it's like always heavy for everybody. Well, like at the time, like my best squat was like 315 or 320. So heavy for me at the time, not heavy anymore. Right on, dude. Let's go. Yeah. Um, and going through that training, it was just so much of the same all the time. Yeah. And I hated okay. it. And then I did my first meet. And I was like, this is it for me. This, this is, is what it. I want to do. This is the shit. This is the show. This is the platform I want to be on. This is the people that I want to be around. Yeah. This is the culture and the community oh, that I want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you, day one, I told my buddy, I'm doing this once and that's it. I'm never doing this again. I don't want to see training like this. I have zero interest in this. So again, put myself in a situation of discomfort, grind through find the actual apple at the end of the whole experience mm -hmm. and find out that I'm deeply passionate about it. And again, it has translated over into my, my now yeah. career in, in helping people realize like strength is never a weakness. Everyone should aspire to be stronger. Just because a squat isn't necessarily like a functional movement yeah. under load doesn't mean we shouldn't do it on the day to day. You said something a few minutes ago, or a few seconds ago, um, about strength never being a weakness. And now, First time I met you and we were working out, I heard you say that to my younger cousin, who's about 16, give or take. Doesn't matter. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm wondering, what advice do you give to people his age in that age group now knowing who, like you said yourself, you're like, and I was there as well, where like, I want to look big, I want to get big. It wasn't about strong, it was about what other people thought. Yeah. I look like, right? If you're not the biggest, most cut or lean, you don't have the good body look or, you know, it's for what other people think about how you look. What is your, like, five cents about that age group and demographic with working out? Like, what advice you kind of, like, recommend to those people? It's, uh... It's the young adults. Kind of. And it's multifaceted. I would never tell somebody what their goals should be. Right. So, personally, for me, I've done the, like the chasing, the, the physique, trying to look a certain way. Yeah. Um, at a time in my life where I really cared a lot more about what people thought about me, and I, I know that being 16, 17 years old is a popularity contest, right? Everyone knows who benches the most. The guys with the biggest chest and biggest arms get the most attention from the girls. The girls with the best figure get the most attention from the boys, and that is the narrative of that age group, and that's part of life. Yeah. I would never tell anybody what they need to do. The most important things I would tell people is exactly what we've been saying root your experience and knowledge, grow through it. You can do all of that stuff and understand how your body's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. Doing things that are smart, and that's a hard thing to do at 16 years old, you know, seek help, go ask the big guy who's 30 years old, who's benching four plates, who's been around the block, like, man, what would, what would you recommend, right? Because, like I said, I can't tell somebody that chasing the physique is foolish or stupid just because it's not something that I, that I value. Right. It's just, how we feel, you know, we look good, feel good, there's there's real testament to that. Yeah. But true. strength is something that should never, ever be mitigated in somebody's training. And my experience with injuries, so I work at a chronic pain clinic, I'm dealing with people who habitually follow the exact same narrative of life or in their twenties, they're priority number one. They take care of themselves, 
they do the things that they want to do. If they have time for workout workouts that they don't want to go get around to golf, they go get it. It's great. But then in their late thirties and forties, you've yeah. got the career, you've got the partner, you've got the kids, you've got the mortgage, you have ten thousand things that need your attention, yeah. and you're no longer priority number one. These are the individuals that start to succumb to injury because they don't have functional strength. And what I love about powerlifting from a sense of, of functionality is like, yes, the squat with a barbell on your back is not something you're ever going to do in real life. There's no. very few instances where you're like, holy crap, let me get my shoulders under this 400-pound load and stand it up. No chance. The bench press has to be one of the least functionally applicable exercises on the face of the planet. Yep. You push things, no doubt. Nobody pushes things super wide. Nobody pushes things laying down. Yeah, so. Right? right, so all of those, the deadlift to me is like the be all end all of exercise simply because every day you pick stuff up. You pick up a kid, you pick up garbage, you pick up laundry, you, you know, you're moving stuff around. If you got a dock, a camp, you got to move that, all kinds of stuff. And that movement requires so much strength and the whole deadlift's bad for your back. Everything that you do poorly is bad for you. But if I have a 16 year old, a 46 year old, and an 86 year old, you bet your ass I'm teaching them how to deadlift. You bet I'm going to show them at least how to squat. It yeah. doesn't have to be under load. And this is because every day you stand up and sit down 200 times. And each one that you do poorly is a debt that you pay for. So no matter what your age is, chase the things that matter to you. But never forget that down the road, your muscles will abandon you. Yeah. Your, your, your appearance and your physique is going to be harder and harder to maintain, especially as you go from first on the docket tenth on the docket in terms of your priorities yeah life. but strength always has to be there or else you will be at my clinic mm. because you put your back out putting your sock on or picking up an empty laundry yeah. basket and this is the narrative that I hear on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. right so this is strength is never a weakness I, I believe that full tilt because Absolutely. we what's <laughs> what I hate we've decided Let's get into oh, it. Oh man, we've decided that every age in our life has some sort of downfall to it associated with it. I have a bad back, but I'm 40. Almost like it's expected. It, yeah, like it comes with it. Yeah, it's just it's just part of the narrative of getting yeah. older. You know, we we don't hear enough from the people who are lifting in their 50s and 60s about the fact that they don't have pain. They don't deal with chronic ailments like that because mm -hmm. they continue that pursuit of physical strength. And I hate this sort of correlation, no causality. I have plantar fasciitis, but I'm 30. I have a bad back, but I'm 40. I have bad knees, but I'm 50. No. Yeah. You have plantar fasciitis because you wear garbage footwear, because you have always worn garbage footwear, and because you were not educated on how to take care of your feet. You have a bad back because you look like a candy cane picking stuff up, and that is functionally the worst position you can be in. Yeah. And it's not lifting up 200 pounds that'll do it. Right? If I take a debit card and I gently bend it, nothing happens. But you bet your ass if I do that for five, six hours, you see the crease. It's the sum yeah, total of the bad on. efforts that cause problems. Right? Buddy has bad knees because for 60 years he would bend down and he'd lift his heels up and his knees would be way out yeah. and he drinks one cup of water a day and 27 beers. He's chronically dehydrated constantly malnourished from a vitamin and nutrient standpoint and moves like he has no idea how to be in this body, those aren't real. Those right. aren't mandatory evolutions through life. Those are the, the, the payment for the shitty decisions yeah. that we make. And at 16, that's when you make those decisions. Right. So like right now I'm working with some NHL players. 
we're trying to figure out why they're getting the injuries that they are. And a lot of it's coming from, at least we, this is what we suspect, and, and you will hear about this more with, with uh, veteran athletes undergoing new changes in the fitness industry. Mm -hmm. You're trying to undo 22 years of habits. You're, 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 you're in Hard a position, right? Yeah. You're, but you can't. Yeah. No. So athletes are not no. functional. A hockey player stands on a butter knife, moves at 40 kilometers an hour, and whips their spine over a puck at 100 miles an hour. None of that happens on a day-to-day -day basis for mom and pops walking through the street. No. These are not functional patterns. When you've trained a certain way for 22 years and your body decides that this is the structure that we're going to maintain, yeah. or we're very adaptable, it's not posturally correct, it's not positionally correct, but it works for them and it doesn't cause problems. When we start to try to undo those, that's when we run into issues. That's when you start fighting old structures and causing new pains. I would love to see mitigating efforts at the young age. Getting 16-year-olds to learn full range of motion, proper muscle activation, how to do proper exercise and good exercise selection, because 20 years ago they trained athletes to do sports-specific movement. So a basketball player doesn't need to squat ass to grass because a basketball player's hips never go below their knees. Where's the value? Well, the value is the one time he does have to go below his knees, he has zero strength, he has zero ownership of that position. Something bad's gonna happen. That's when it happens, right? He's gonna break. So, so at 16, do what you're doing, be part of the crew, whatever your goals are, look a certain way, feel a certain way, but master the craft, start taking it seriously, the gym is something that shouldn't be a hobby. It should be a, a, a lifestyle skill, very much like brushing your teeth, showering, maintaining certain levels of hygiene and appearance, putting clothes on when you go out the door. I always found it strange when I meet somebody and I'm like, oh, like, what kind of things are you into? They're like, oh, like, I like going to the gym. I'm like, that's not an interest. That's a necessary step. We don't hunt and gather anymore. We don't get to spend all day doing hard work. We don't have a lot of farms. We sit our asses at desks all day long, and then we sit our asses in a car, and then we go to sit to recover from all the sitting that we did. You better be in the gym. So at least take ownership over your experience and master it as much as you can. And it's not complicated. It really isn't. Especially now, when we have Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, you can learn all of the anatomy. Everything. Of right? Yeah. You can, like, YouTube University is like a joke now. right here. Right? And figure everything I need out ever. And that's all it takes. You Ridiculous. don't you don't have to take a master's anatomy class to understand how the lats work. No. But buddy, when you start to understand how muscles interact with the movement and what you should be feeling, you are immediately in the top five percent of aptitude in the gym because everyone else is floating around, guessing. They do the Stevie Wonder. They walk in and they just sort of look for a machine yeah. that's available and then they go do it. They don't know what it's for. It's, they're not programming anything. You know, they do cardio all day long. They lose 30 pounds the first week. They think that they've made the new diet. They don't realize they just sweat out all of this water and they're just yeah, going to be gaining weight this week. So, yeah, master your craft and take health and fitness seriously because we're conditioned to focus so much on money. You know, you have to have a job. you got to have six six-figure uh, salary. Get your RSPs, get your TFSAs, don't forget to get your dividends on. Like, all this stuff doesn't matter if you're sick and broken. Yeah. It just doesn't. If you don't have health, you don't have wealth. It doesn't matter. Interesting. I like that concept. So, master it young, <laughs> own it for life, don't make it a hobby. 
make it the same as getting eight hours of sleep, drinking enough water. Mm -hmm. This is the stuff. We talk about investing money in stocks and collecting dividends. Dividends are great. Money's irrelevant. We live in a time where money basically doesn't mean shit. Yeah, which is incorrect if you ask any small business owner. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, yeah. you know, if you had a hundred dollars in the year nineteen hundred and you kept it in your bank account, it's worth two bucks today, right? Inflation. People are printing money. The real dividends in life are the decisions that we make for our health. Because if money goes down, let's say tomorrow money doesn't exist, it's going to go back to survival of the fittest. And you bet your ass the people who hack darts, chronically eat McDonald's, get four hours of sleep a night, yeah, they're way the first too much to go. Alcohol. Oh yeah, yeah. Dude, it's, it's bad. As we're slugging down monsters. Yeah, but I regret nothing, like, none at all. <laughs> now, one thing you mentioned I want to throw in, uh, you said you're like, oh, there's like a thing where, oh, I have bad knees, well, I'm 50, right? It almost, with that attitude, comes... If you're in your 20s, right, you didn't say that, right? You're not like, oh, if you're in your 20s, you, wow, it's okay, I'm 20. It's kind of the opposite, right? And you might find this to be true as well, where you're almost not allowed to be sore or injured or tired in your 20s. Well, like, you're not allowed, it seems. Like, that's kind of what, going off of what you said with that stuff in the 30s, oh, well, I got bad, a bad shoulder or a bad hip, well, I'm in my 40s, I'm working at that, right? There's those excuses that are paired with the age, yeah. right? So you can't, it's like, oh, you're a lot, does that mean you neglect it? Does that mean I should be neglecting my, like, ankle injury or my lower back injury? If I'm, oh, I'm in my 20, I'm 25, I'll be all right. Yeah. It's my lower back, and, you know, I'm 35, 35, 45, I'm like, why is my lower back? It's like, well, so. Well, and, and the tricky thing, too, is we recover well when we're young. Yes. So everyone Thankfully. says it's all downhill after 30. I thought it was a joke. I sneezed the day after my 30th birthday and I put four ribs out. Um, by a <laughs> yeah. It's not what though. Right? So it, the tricky thing I is, sneezed. You, you can't fight biology. Couldn't stood up. Your, your collagen comes down as you get older. In males, our testosterone starts to come down after 40. Our growth hormone obviously starts to suppress as we get older because we don't need to keep growing. The ability to have growth hormone and testosterone and collagen in the body means that our tissues heal faster. So it's not that you're not allowed to be injured in your 20s, it's just that you probably bounce back way faster. Oh, yeah. Um, but that can be said too, you can carry that over into later life by continuing to be active. Your testosterone only goes down. This is tough, there's multiple That's, levels yeah. to it, but as, you, as a male gets older, mm -hmm. their testosterone comes down naturally because biologically, there's less desire to have a child, right? It's, you've reached the age, you get to that point, we have a finite amount of life that we have, we have clocks and systems in our body that say, okay, this is prime time, after that, it's not. So the levels naturally come down. I think it's usually after about like 38, 40. Yeah. However, if you maintain physical strength and you continue to pursue active lifestyle, those levels don't suppress because testosterone is necessary for muscle development, which means you're still stimulating that engine, which means your body's not going to suppress the production of those. It's no wonder that people who stay fit have less injuries as they get older, right? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's, it's not to say in your 20s you're not allowed to get hurt. If you get hurt in your 20s, it's a big deal because mm -hmm. the way that you treat that injury will dictate the next 30 years. If you, if you ignore it, it will be a problem. And I, I see that a lot with people whose shoulders get bad. You know, after you have a kid, you start carrying them all on your good side. Well, Buddy played football back in the day, and he separated that shoulder when he was 16. Coach just gave it like a little knock-in, and away he went. That's not healing. That's not recovery. He probably no. played a game next week. Oh, probably. But the growth hormone's there. The ability to heal's there. He's young. Yeah. 
that injury, quick, that injury carries, but it, it stays in. The physiology and the pathology of that injury carry over down the road, and then it just it springs up you know, 20 yeah. years later. Huh. Now, you said into your uh, career and your day-to-day -day right now at the clinic, um, your uh, fascial, is that a yeah. correct? Yeah, not facial, fascial no. stretch. Yeah, fascial stretch specialist. Yeah. Take me through how you came into that career. Because before I met you, I never heard about it. <laughs> so fascial stress therapy is spectacular. And I'm not biased. I just, I love it. Um, first thing, fascia is a tissue in the body that for some reason we don't talk about until you get plantar fasciitis. It's the first time we hear about it. Like, oh yeah, cool. There's fascia in my foot and it hurts. Fascia is like a, it's this interconnected network of tissue that allows muscle groups that aren't close to each other to interact together. When you think about a baseball swing, a golf swing, you have a diagonal sling of muscles that have to work from your right shoulder to your left hip down to your feet, and all of that force translation goes through fascia. Fascia is a miracle tissue. It really is quite profound on how it influences our emotional standpoints, our physical standpoints. Yeah. Fascia constantly rebuilds, so in the positions and postures that you maintain, fascia starts to get stuck there. That's why somebody who worked at a desk for 30 years looks like they worked at a desk for 30 years. They're hunched over, they're bent, they're kyphotic, their hips are tight. Their fascia is there. Back it, yeah. Fascia is a, is a sort of a biological cast. It responds to trauma by stiffening and securing a joint. So that's a super important thing that we do, right? Yeah. When you, like as soon as you get hurt, you get stuck. When you see somebody with a back issue, they don't move. It's a necessary reaction, but like I said, it constantly rebuilds. If you keep nurturing yeah. a bad position, it stays there. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on about the efficacy of fascial treatment. I got into it because, like I said, after I got into trying to help people move better and yeah. gain functional strength and just be better people, uh, my desire was to assess people, teach them how to move, give them the aptitude for life, and then whatever their goals are, they have the skill set. Mm -hmm. There's some bodies that can't do that because they've got 20 years of fascial lockdowns. They've got these positions and patterns that are super bad, but they don't know how to get out of them. Card for a second. So, essentially what I do is I, uh, I take the joints of the body through uh, functional ranges of motion. So, I have people on a table. Um, if I'm doing lower body, one of the legs is strapped down for an anchor, and I basically just move that joint around. I'll, I'll stretch you and you'll feel your hamstrings, you'll feel your quads, you'll feel your calves. I'm actually stretching the net, the, the connective network of tissue through the body. And so, it's it, this is gonna sound like witchcraft, but if somebody has a bad left shoulder and I treat their right hip, there is relief. Because if you imagine you have a full body wetsuit and at your hip, I create a big knot, everything's gonna get pulled down towards that knot. And that's what fascia is. Yeah. And so, a lot of treatments these days, they spot treat and they treat the pain, right? Mm -hmm. So if like, and there's obvious things. If you fall on your shoulder and your shoulder hurts, it's probably your probably shoulder. Probably your shoulder. Yeah, it's an impact thing, right? But if you have a bad back mm -hmm. and you didn't get hit, you didn't fall, I'm gonna say it's a low to no chance. It's because of your back. It's gonna be your hips are out of alignment. You've been sitting a lot, so you have glutes that don't extend your hips properly. And our body's too adaptable, yeah. 100%, yeah. right? You get stuck in these positions. The, the, the blessing and the curse of the human body is it finds a way. 
If you smoke yeah. cigarettes, eat McDonald's, and sleep three hours a night, doesn't mean you're going to die at 30. No. You might make it 90 years. Your body finds a way. When it comes to back pain, if a muscle isn't doing something, your body asks of another muscle to yeah. try and do it. Uh, and that takes away from what that's the job of that muscle is. Well, and, and when you learn about yeah. what muscles do, like what their specific actions are on the joints, mm -hmm. Some of these muscles aren't designed for it, no. right? They they don't actually move the muscle or the the joints the way that they're supposed to. There's compensation and rotation and all these things that otherwise create problems. It's like in a car, if something's supposed to turn a certain way and yeah. there's a force that acts against its natural movement, you break something. Right. Well, that's what happens in our body. It's why rotator cuffs are such a bad injury for people. We're not designed to be kyphotic and rounded forward. Okay. Our shoulder blades are supposed to be back and down. So when you go to reach up, if your shoulder blades don't move properly, you get all these weird sort of jarring motions to try to find it. That's just sheer and grinding. Mm -hmm. So fascial stress therapy, it, one thing I love, it doesn't hurt. We are at a time right now in health and wellness and, and physical performance where it's more pain, more gain. Yeah. You know, it has to hurt. And yeah. if you look at the average person, they're so in their sympathetic nervous system. They're so geared and ready to do stuff all the time from the moment they wake up, they're stressed, they wake up, they check their emails, their boss is pissed, the kids are screaming, <laughs> your partner needs you to do something, you're already late for work, yeah. you go in the car, you sit in traffic, you get yelled at all day from work, Karen from finance is giving you trouble about payments that you didn't put through. Oh you. man. And so you get home yeah. and you just want to relax. It's pent up. Yeah. We're just here all the time, right? And your sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight. That is your emergency system and we live there now. That is how we exist. We breathe like we're on the brink of death. Mm -hmm. We accept things like headaches and chronic fatigue as a byproduct of the day and age that we live in. They're not. So if, I, if I'm in that state and I go to see somebody to get help and they drill an elbow into my neck and they're snapping my neck and I'm not comfortable with it yeah. and for 20, 30 minutes all I do is feel this pent, I haven't gone out of that system. And so the two systems that we focus on is sympathetic parasympathetic. Sympathetic, like I said, is fight or flight. Parasympathetic is rest and digest. That's where we want to be. The analogy I always like to use for people, when you're going on a trip and you get to the airport and your luggage is five pounds heavy and you have to find a way to figure that out and you don't know where the gate is and you're hustling and they're calling last call and you're barely getting there. Yeah. Are you calm? Are you taking big deep breaths and your shoulders are down and you're relaxed? Hell no, man. No, dude, I'm you're hyperventilating, you're here, you're ready to punch people that are in your way. That's sympathetic. When you finally get off the flight, you go to your hotel, you get your room key, you go up there, exactly, right? You look out the window and, Mom, we made it. Like, and that's yeah. rest and digest. And that's where uh, we need to get back into. We yeah. need to find ways to get into that. So what I love about fascia stress therapy is because it doesn't hurt, because I'm cueing my clients on, on take a deep breath here, nice and relaxed, they lay there and provide no assistance to what I do because I don't need tension in their body. I'm trying to work within residual tension. I don't need active tension. So for some people, just the fact that for a full hour, like no one's screaming at them, no one needs them. I have clients that fall asleep. I've, I, I, you just, it's in my mind more beneficial than putting the client through yet another hour of like, buckle up, this is gonna suck real bad. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so getting into it, it was some people's canvas is too messed up for me to help them paint a better picture. 
So they need uh, a blank canvas. Yeah. They need that opportunity to get passive range of motion back into these joints. Mm -hmm. Then they can go do the good exercise. Then they can chase their goals and they can be better and, humans. And now it's not a one and done. You they hear a noise and they think their day's better, right? It's like a there's a process depending on the injury. It's very very personal. Yeah. Well, and what's nice is it's not injury dependent. Right. So it's okay. a tough thing to explain without doing it to a person because verbally it sounds quite odd. Um, I stretch people. What does that mean, right? Stretching is a, is a conversation now where the science is so pro and con. You know, you read it, you read the abstract of an article, it says stretching is bad for you. You read the article, they did a two minute static hamstring stretch. And of course that doesn't do anything because that's not how we move. We don't do anything static. So it's a bit of a mess on that end. but. The best way I can explain it is I do yoga to you mm -hmm. while you do nothing. And so, uh, oh, sorry, the fascial muscle tissue is in every joint. Well, the fat, so it's, it's not just in the feet? No. Like yeah. you said, <laughs> common is plantar fasciitis, yep. and that's the only other time we hear about it. So people, I affiliate that with the feet. So until having you on the show, before that, like a couple days ago, I figured out, I was like, it's everything. Like a rep, because I was like, there's no way it's just the Feet. No, it's in your entire body. So there's a great exhibit called Body Works, yeah. and it finds its way to like Science North and different museums and stuff. And I think you can go check it out online. I highly recommend it. If you're interested in how the body works, what they do, yeah. I mean, if you're squeamish, it's definitely not the thing for you. Right. But Body Works is like cross sections of human bodies that donate for science, and they've Whoa. removed just the muscle, and they've made this figure of just the muscle, and they've only recently been able to remove the full fascial network and show what it looks like. There's tons of video on fascia, but it's your entire body. Everything is connected. Yeah. So, yeah, it's we do it around lower body, we do it around the upper body, we do it around articulating joints because that's where there's the most traffic, right. therefore the most likelihood for adhesion. Like shoulders and, problems, and stuff. Shoulders, and neck, and hips, right? Yeah. But yeah, it's it's everywhere in the body, and it's something that you have to treat in order to get true plastic change in the body. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in my mind, and I, like I haven't done the research on this, so if I'm wrong, I'm very happy to hear otherwise. I don't think that people's muscles mm -hmm. lose range of motion. I mean, fundamentally, your bicep flexes and extends, and everyone's can. But if the wetsuit of the fascial network dictates a different level of tension, mm -hmm. you lose that range of motion. So tight hamstrings, I don't think it's fair to say it's just tight hamstrings. No. I think the back net of the body, because even like we're sitting, this is promoting all of these bad positions, shortening in the hips, over lengthening of the back, I got this slouch through my upper back. If I stay in this position, my fascia adapts to this, I think the muscles retain their range of motion, mm -hmm. but they are... Uh, superseded by what the fascia allows. Yeah. Now, <laughs> as you say that, and thinking back to like about 10 minutes ago in a conversation, it kind of sparked this, my brain works really weird. My brain works on, there's a problem, how do we fix it? And the problem being with, and I only know this because recently, like in the last two years, I've finally like, can say, okay, I have good deadlift form. I have a good squat form. I have a good overhead press form. Like, my form with lifting is better. And I'm like, I was like 23 when I figured that out, which is ridiculous. So, and I can only imagine if you're older and you're figuring out or you haven't figured it out yet, and still, like, we all get sore and stuff. But I think 
I want to find a way to have you teach in a high school class called How to Lift. Yeah. Because I don't think, and that class, along with a home ec and a wood shop, should be fucking mandatory. Absolutely. Every Because it's not just, oh, well, like, you're a nerd, you don't really want to, I'm a nerd, I identify this way, I don't want to lift weights, I don't need to get, I don't care. It's like, okay, I get it, that's not your, that's not the point. The point is the movement, like you said, range of motion, understanding how the body works, because the more self-aware you are, i found, the easier it is to tackle the problem. Right, like if I, I know that, for example, it's funny when you say you're sitting down, you're hunched over and everything, dude, I'd have, I'd then, I'd sit for eight plus hours a day working in an office for the first year after uh, college, and then I would come here, train jiu-jitsu for a couple, for two hours, and I'd be like, why is my shoulder always sore? Why is my lower back sore? I'm getting up, I'm like, mm. Yeah. You know, we got the 30, 40, 50 year olds in the office, barely moving to get up, takes them like minutes, two turns of a big hand. And they sit up and they're like, oh man, I'm sitting there like this all day, whatever. I'm, I'm trying, like I'm aware that posture is bad from that. So I'm like trying to compensate a bit, trying to go. It's create more like an S shape in my back and my body. And then I stand up and I come here and train. I'm like, why am I always sore? This is the most dangerous demographic in the gym. Yeah. And it's not because their heart's not in the right place. Mm. But the same way you wouldn't start a diesel truck in the middle of the winter unplugged after four or five years because you know something real bad is going to happen. Very bad. You know, it's the same thing that you're doing to your body. You've stayed sedentary for such a long period of time, and this is the thing. Consistent. We, and we don't, we're in a rush. If that's your lifestyle, it's fair to say that the bulk, some of those people are going to be in a rush. Yeah. So they have an hour. Well, it's what I recommend for people is for every hour of sitting, you have to do five minutes of stretching. It sounds pretty easy, right? Dynamic stretching? Or just uh, yeah, static stretching, I, I will never recommend to somebody. I don't see the value. We are dynamic people. Static doesn't do anything. If I want to tear down a wall, I don't place a sledgehammer next to it and go, go ahead. Right? You have to move. You swing it. You swing the it. shit out of it, yeah. And if you sit for eight hours and you only have an hour at the gym, there's no way you're taking 40 minutes of that to stretch. You're going right to the gym. You're doing five minutes on the treadmill to warm up, and then you're going to do your lift. You aren't ready. Right? So it, then it becomes a thing where we have to take ownership over our mobility and make sure that on a regular basis, before I go to bed, I'm going to do 20 minutes. When I wake up in the morning, I'm going to do 20 minutes. Well, now you've got your 40 minutes that you need. You're at least creating an environment, much like the diesel truck. You plugged it in. You warmed up the garage. You made sure that the environment was appropriate for activation. I think it's the same thing with your person who's sitting all day long. I think with, um, with the person sitting all day and then going, what I recommend when I talk to, like, say, my business partner, for example, or my supervisor, I kind of say it in like a sense of you need to warm up correctly They're like oh man go we'll work out we'll do this and I'm like I'm not working out for two hours that's silly I'm like okay if we have, if we're crunched on time and we have a physical dynamic a lot of dynamic movement during the day right if you're working in renovations and man like maintenance and management you're walking around you're meeting with clients you're not sitting there for three four hours no you're moving <clears throat> you're sitting in the car that's really the only time you're seated but you're going places and you're moving but I kind of recommend I'm like yo I'll do I'm like max an hour working out for 45 minutes 15 is warm up yeah. at the beginning it's like I get like a two and a half five pound plate hold it in my hand I rotate my shoulders you know I get my rota rotator cuff 
put like the joint, like fluid in my joints, get some blood flowing, just so that I feel good, I feel strong, and then I'll do, like I'll do leg lifts for a bit. You know, I'll hold, do leg lifts. I'll like engage when I do like a, do pull ups, whatever, to warm up. It's not extravagant. It's not 45 minutes of this, 45 minutes of that. But it's if I know that I'm standing, or if I know I'm sitting all day, my stretches have to be moving. I have to get the blood flow. I have to kind of adjust my posture for the activity I'm about to do. And it takes longer to get the blood flowing if you're sitting down all day. Whereas you can just kind of flip the switch and you're already almost warmed up if you go to work out after work and it's all dynamic movement. But I find a lot of that is kind of, if you take the necessary steps in this case to get to the gym, you've gotten everything, you got your pre-workout, whatever you need, and you sit down all day, it's so, so important, like you're saying, if you're not warming up or even cooling down, I think is key too. People like sit yeah. and then they stretch. I'm like, you, that's just counterproductive to what you're doing. Correct. Right? So stuff like that is very, very, it's important and I don't think a lot of people know and like you said the gen pop in gyms is very very it's an intimidating thing there's you don't know what you're doing you don't know where you are you're new you don't know anybody there there's big people really attractive people like these people that are just very very it's a watering hole on everybody's yeah. lions you yeah you don't want to get caught up in it it becomes one of those things where gen pop people get their information from the wrong sources right so the average person goes into the gym because they want to lose weight weight has zero impact on your quality of life. It just doesn't. It's not weight. It's what is your body able to hold? What do people associate with the weight? So when, when I got into personal training, we did what's called emotional roots. Telling you me you want to lose 20 pounds means absolutely nothing. You're not emotionally attached to losing 20 pounds. If I, Because the reality is I can get you in a hot bathtub with Epsom salts and make you spit in a cup for two hours and you'll lose 20 pounds. Yeah. You'll sweat out that weight. You'll feel like ass. You'll feel like ass. And so what we do is we try to find a why 20 pounds. Well, when I was 25, I was 20 pounds lighter. Well, what was different when you were 25? I just had more energy. I was able to play sports. I was able to hang. You were playing sports. Weird how that works, right? So we find we find an emotional connection to what's going on. Mm. The average person's going to the gym because they want to regain that emotional attachment to that quality of life that they had. What the average person doesn't realize is, let's say we have a tank, and that's how many calories we burn in a day. The bulk sum of it is what's called your BMR, your basal metabolic rate. That's just how much calories you need to not die for your organs to do what they're going to do, for your brain to be able to think on the fly. And actually, it's not even think on the fly. This is restless state. This is just to maintain this this position. Correct. Right? Muscle is the engine. So the more muscle you have, the more calories your body's going to burn through because that's how muscle works. That's why we promote muscle over holding fat, fats, fat storage or calorie storage, muscle is calorie burning, we obviously want more muscle. Then we have the exercise component, which is like less than 10% of your calories. If you work out every single day and you do an hour workout, it's like, especially for the average person, like maybe 300 to 400 calories. That's that's not a lot. The sweet spot, the spot that we have the most impact on is called meat. And it's the non-exercise related activity-based thermogenesis. So this is just like, doing stuff in your day, hauling ass to get to the bus, walking around all day, going up and down the stairs at work. Lifting heavier things to get there, right? Your tools, whatever, going playing with the kids on the playground. Exactly, right? This is where we have the biggest direct impact on our weight management. So they're going to the gym for the 
no, I won't say the wrong reason, but what they've been told is the gym will get them where they want to go. Mm-hmm. What they don't realize is that uh, a big thing I, I advocate now is a 10-minute walk after every meal. So have breakfast, go for a 10-minute walk. Have lunch, go for a 10-minute walk. And you, I, I will take a DM from any person who says, I cannot find 10 minutes after each meal because I'm going to find three and a half hours of opportunity in your day. The average lunch, even on the low end through any corporate place, is 30 minutes. Yeah. If you can't eat a meal in less than 20 minutes, you have other problems we need to focus on. In the morning, it's a matter of getting up 10 minutes earlier if you don't have that time. And it, this is the thing. When you're priority 10, you make an excuse. When you're priority 1, you don't let anything get in between you and what you're trying to go no. for. And I, under, I, like, I don't have kids. I'm divorced. My, my perspective on priority is obviously going to be a little bit different from people. Right. But much like on an airplane, when the masks come down, you have to put yours on first. Yeah. So you have to make yourself at least a higher priority. Right. You're you, no good to anybody else. Right? If you so. don't have your health... Your wealth doesn't mean anything. If all you're doing is busting your ass for 10 hours a day to try to pay bills and do all this good lifestyle stuff for people, but you're sleeping four hours, you're not taking care of yourself, you it your is health. irrelevant, right? Yeah. So going into the gym, it requires a, a sense of ownership of the experience. You absolutely have to learn from the right people, not from women's health and men's health and these keto promote yeah, I lost 60 pounds in two weeks like no you didn't <laughs> right so yeah we have to learn that yeah. stuff um, there's something else you touched on there but it's completely left my mind Damn. So let that go. Damn. that's okay dude there's that um, I think when it comes to that kind of thing it's a matter of like I throw the scale at the window I haven't I don't we get into a comparative analysis with people who I don't look at the scale I don't I, let me preface this. When I compete in jiu-jitsu tournaments, I, it's a weight ah, class. Absolutely. I need to. That doesn't depict, my mood doesn't depict my day. And like you said, if I want to lose five pounds, because I know the gi adds another five, or, well, my new gi adds probably three. <laughs> but if I know I need to lose eight pounds to compete the next morning, like you said, spit in a bucket, sit in an Epsom salt bath for a couple hours, good, I'll lose ten pounds. Yeah. I feel tired my brain doesn't have any functionable like I'm not as cognitive unfortunately and those things kind of start to derail that process and then once you weigh in everything's good you like add to it and crush it and then I'm like exactly dude and you just feel better about yourself and I think a lot of problems now is the headlines with the weight and everything's people make things quantifiable and I think that's a problem when you associate numbers with success and happiness, right? Because it's an internal thing and it's an emotional thing. And like you said, you said it best with the example of, oh, well, how'd you feel? Well, when I was 23, I weighed 125 pounds, but now I weigh 155 pounds and I want to lose that 30 pounds to get nearly. But that's not going to help you because you sit at, you wake up, you sit down and eat breakfast. You get up, sit down on the toilet, get up, walk, sit down for eight hours at your desk, get up to go sit down to eat dinner, to get up to go sit down to watch Netflix, to get up to lie down. Yeah. You're not, where's the movement? Correct. Right? So there's less of that, there's more, it's just a less of a way of life and we have to find a way to almost remove the numbers that are associated with happiness. Like, oh, if you don't have X amount in the bank, well, it's like, I know people who have a lot more money than I do, but like you said earlier, five kids, 
they could be going crazy their bottom of the priority list in their own life. And I'm like, well, I'm at the top of mine, and I have maybe half, yeah. maybe one eighth of what your like old man would have in that case. And like those cases, I was like, well, this is less stressful for me in this situation where this is more because you're at the top of the priority and yeah. trying to find that and then people to almost support you in that you bring up the people you're around and finding the right people to get the right information from is kind of the census of the show right it's like okay I don't know about this this looks this sounds fascinating and then let's talk to the person see if they want to like educate me on this or this is a topic of conversation I'll learn more about or I'll always be luckily I was raised always with a mindset from my parents of like always be active always doing things always sports like that was kind of drilled into me not so much like a peer pressure thing but just this is the lifestyle I was raised in grateful for it and it kind of makes I want to learn everything I can from people like you right people like Pat people like people here I train with where it's this is the experiences they've had this is why their body hurts or why their body reacts this way or this is why we have our aerobic and anaerobic energy systems right this is how you can use one to your benefit this is how you don't this is like you said you're all bent up and then it's it's a switch and then now you can react right fight or flight and i think finding a way to remove ourselves from the numbers that we associate with happiness and success in certain things especially with how we feel how do you think we can go about doing that in a world that's very very counterproductive to that that's probably the best question because everything that we're showing is how much do you weigh what's your body fat percentage what's your BMI what's your blood pressure we are a strictly analytical from a numerical standpoint how much you make all this stuff it matters but it doesn't mean anything so I would like I know a lot of coaches that say like just throw out the scale forget about it I think it's important to understand the scale. I don't think right. neglect breeds development. I think that knowledge breeds development. And I think that understanding the role that the scale plays is more beneficial than ignoring it altogether. Good. And I think that the things that people overlook are, as soon as somebody starts working out, they will gain weight. They will gain weight. And they will lose their mind. And predominantly, in my experience, I would get it more with the female side. Yeah. I don't want to lose, or I don't want to gain weight. They start working out, they gain weight, they're like, their system doesn't work. And you're like, well, no, because before your body wasn't too concerned about water storage, and you didn't have as much glycogen in your body. And now your body's going, okay, well, it's just like going on a long trip. Maybe you're the type of person who puts a quarter tank of gas because you're always close to a gas station, you always drive local. But as soon as you're like, holy shit, I'm driving stuff in Toronto, filling up the tank, right? It's the same thing. Understanding the scale means that it doesn't have as big of an impact on you, but you're able to continue using it as a tool. And that's what it is. That's fair. That's a good point. One more terrible cliche. If it isn't measured, it isn't managed. If your goal is rooted in weight loss, and I'm telling you, no, it's actually rooted in physical activity, mm-hmm. no one's going to be like, perfect, I don't care about weight. But if I help them understand <laughs> that the other numbers we should be focusing on are getting the inches on the body, taking the measurements of the, the body because that'll change. That'll change and you will see the the growth and development and the losses in the areas you're looking for if you're training and you're eating properly that the scale won't reflect right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. That's motivation. You know, clothes fitting better, feeling better. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most overlooked things and I can't get people to do it with the, with the same level that I wish, especially on the male side, is journal. 
I don't understand why there's so much apprehension to writing down the things that you're thinking about and the things that you're feeling. Not just with weightlifting. In general, right? In your quality of life. There is a direct correlation based off the causality of taking better care of yourself that you will experience things in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. You will experience uh, situational struggles and be able to manage yourself better. You're going to sleep better. You're going to have different dreams. You're going to start making better decisions based off of the activity and the decisions you're making otherwise. But if, like I said, if it isn't measured, it isn't managed. If you aren't keeping track of the fact that while you are maybe a chronic red wine drinker, but since you went to the gym, you've cut down to two glasses a week, you don't see it. You don't see the progress. You don't see the opportunity that that's presenting. Right. And then if the scale goes the other way, because let's say you're a female and you're premenstrual at this point, you're starting to retain water you lose the momentum that you've already gained. Journaling is so important. For me, journaling has been an opportunity to look at the simple things. Money doesn't buy happiness, it certainly helps, but you can get happiness in overcoming things that a younger you, a less experienced you, might not have been able to handle. You know, like you said, where you're you're having these narratives in your head and you're sort of, you're solving the problem. When we talk about growth mindset versus fixed mindset, Mm -hmm. a growth mindset is something you, you have to understand the process of Mm -hmm. and if you're not aware of it or you're not keeping track of it and you're not seeing these super sensory growth things happening in you it's very easy to lose your place so journal keep track of whatever you want there are 10 million versions of journals and 10 million different ways to keep track of things it can be you wake up in the morning and you have the same 10 observable things how did I sleep? Scale of one to ten. What were my dreams like? Happy or sad? Yeah. Um, what's my appetite? What's my sex drive? Um, did I eat properly yesterday? Did I drink properly yesterday? Did I get exercise in? Did I do something that brought happiness into my life? Mm-hmm. Or it can be the long form journaling of writing about the the issues that you're having, yeah. relationship struggles, um, opportunities that you figured out, you know, aspirations that you have, and then you can go back six months later, six weeks later, two weeks later, and see these beautiful examples of growth mm. and change that will share a correlation to the things that you're doing in the gym that the scale doesn't manage. So for me, when I first started going to the gym, there was a pizza hut right next, or pizza pizza, pardon me. Right on. And I would grab a slice right after, because like everyone else who does this, I earned it. Yeah, you, right? that is a good you point. Think about it, right? I do that a lot, yeah. And so then you start going to the gym, you start skipping that, and that's a win. Especially from somebody who came from being a bigger guy, being a big bit of a food addict, that's a win. If I don't keep track of it, I don't see the merit in it. I don't try to continue that habit. Right. right? Habits don't develop on accident. It's typically something that we're aware of that we're trying to do. Yeah. So when I journal about that and I go, hey man, I didn't have a pizza today. How much, like, I write that down, I see it, I go back through the history of how many times I've done that, I just overcame it. If I'm an addict of some sort, or somebody who's just heavily inclined to do that, and I see that little win. You think I'm gonna have pizza tomorrow? No, I feel good writing it. I feel yeah. good seeing it. And I now I feel good now. Yeah. Yeah. And now I, I'm encouraging that ball to keep going, get that momentum rolling. So, your scale, like you and I, like in powerlifting, I've always competed in two twenty, so I'm twelve pounds over my weight class right now. So you're aware of, of that, yeah. Not a bad thing. And it, it doesn't stress me out. Right. Like. Uh, through COVID, I definitely developed a bit of do- body dysmorphia because yeah. I was probably in the best shape I was, or I have been, in uh, December. 
Pat and I were training really regularly. Yeah. I was hard on the diet. I just moved up here a few months before, you know, and, and it's always been an important thing to me. And at mm -hmm. the time, everything's closed, so you're kind of just working out. Yeah. Um, putting on the extra weight has been a little bit of a difficult thing because I, I don't recognize myself, but because I journal and I keep track of the stuff, I realize that you know I'm I'm now I've I've moved I haven't moved myself down in priorities, but the things in my life have changed. I wasn't really working very much in December. Now I'm, I'm working a full-time job doing the thing that I'm very passionate about mm -hmm. um, and I'm constantly trying to expand and build outside of what I'm doing with my job. Mm -hmm. So with gyms being closed, the gym has always sort of been the catalyst for me to eat a little bit better, to make better decisions, yeah. but it's the only component for me that has really shifted. I still get eight hours of sleep a night, I still make sure I'm eating good food, all whole food, all meal prep as often as I can, I'm drinking lots of water, I take care of the other sort of cornerstones of health. The gym has always just been that extra thing for me because yeah. I need to compete. I'm working on numbers, right? I want to lift a certain amount. I have to have a certain strength aptitude, right. and I need to be under 220. So I make better choices more regularly than I do right now. Yeah. Um, but for me, that's my emotional attachment to the scale. But getting up and so it's like I've been 232 this morning. I'm 229. It's not a celebration thing. It doesn't matter for or against. Mm. It just is. Um, and I'm going to look at it as the fact that like. I've recently gone from having all red meat meals to having a chicken meal a day, and that's probably showing a little bit less inflammation and a little bit more, you know, calorie deficit going forward. But I'm not going to do a cartwheel. I'm not going to say my quality of life is any better than it was before. Right. It just is a thing. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, when we break the emotional connection to the weight and the scale, we use it as the tool that it is. Mm. Um, we start incorporating other tools, other metrics for um, betterment then we're more educated, we're more likely to find success. Because yeah. weight comes and goes. And when we look at a lot yeah. of these crash diets, they go off hard. Like I did keto before keto was really trendy, and I did it because I had I had something done to me called biosignature, I don't know if it's a thing anymore. But they did um, yeah. uh, fat calipers throughout your body, and they looked for asymmetrical fat distribution, which is usually an indicator of a hormonal imbalance. Okay. So like a good example is like your triceps. Your triceps, I believe, is a lack of testosterone, which is why when you see women who are postmenstrual, they tend to store more fat in the triceps. They call it the bingo wings or whatever. And then you see it more on the female side, right? So I think that there's some science to it, but my big thing was the love handles. At 12% body fat, I still had a fanny pack on each side. I couldn't get rid of it. And I was told that it was insulin resistance. I had, my body doesn't respond well to carbs, so I did keto. Felt great. They went away, lost the weight. But then as soon as you come off, that weight comes back and it comes back with interest in a lot of friends. And that's the downside, right? That's yeah. that's what happens with these crash diets. You lose 30 pounds, you gain 45. You lose 45, you gain 60. So, you know, mm. figuring out how to eat for your specific body type, for the way that your body works. It's huge. It, it's so important. Very. And that's what I hate about diets. Um, what you eat and what I eat. Different. Different. And Very. if you eat what I eat, you're not going to get the same things out of it and vice versa. Exactly. Right? If you ever talk to somebody about like, hey, what exercise should I do? How long should I stretch for? What should my rehab look like? What should my diet look like? I have a bunch of follow-up questions. There's no way I have, there's no right, direct one answer. If you're like, oh, what should I lift? I'm like, are you sore anywhere? Like, are you warming up? What do you do for a living? You know, I'm not gonna, the I'm intense to, you know. The only acceptable answer is it depends. Very much if so. If you yeah. ever ask somebody any of those questions and they give you an answer, run, don't walk. Because they are giving you some cookie cutter bullshit, bullshit to try to yeah. get you to buy Doesn't into work. something. 
there's no way for me to know. Mm -hmm. And I'm a nutrition coach, I'm a fascial strength specialist, I'm a personal <coughs> trainer, and not once do I give anybody the same thing. Nobody gets a direct answer. You like nutrition's tricky, but you start with something basic, and you mm -hmm. look at the reaction, yeah. and then you cater and you tailor. But if somebody says what's the best diet, and they go keto, get the fuck out of there. Get out of there. There is no best diet. That's that fixed mindset. Right? Yeah, there, always comes back to that. There is no best anything. No. There's no best strength training program. I've done a few of them. Mm -hmm. They all yielded results. Yeah. Compliance is the science at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters that you do it. Exactly. The best diet is the one you're going to stick to. The best workout program is the one you're going to stick, stick to. Yeah. And that's going to be different for from person to person mm -hmm. and, and gender to gender 100%. and culture to culture. Right? Right. So, um, yeah, super, super important. Don't worry about the scale. Use it as a metric. Use it as one of ten metrics. Put it in tenth out of ten positional spots. Make sure you're, you're journaling, you're keeping track. Whatever your journal looks like, if it's opening up the notes app on your phone and just saying, like, had a good day, had a shitty day, mm. got six hours of sleep, had a bad day, had eight hours of sleep, felt good. Start looking for the things that make you feel the, the way that you think. How do I say this? Your emotional connection to losing 20 pounds and you think about what your quality of life was. Pay attention to the things that get you close to there that aren't just weight. Right. I had more energy. Did you sleep eight hours? Yeah. You should probably do that more often. Man, my, my body didn't hurt. I trained super hard today. Did you drink lots of water? Yeah. There you go. You should probably do that more often. Right? We are the sum yeah. total of the good decisions that we make. Mm -hmm. We are not numbers on a scale. Right. And that, I think, contributes a lot to the overall success in health and the wealth of our everyday life yeah it's very much something that here's one for you that uh, I kind of I think when we were working out that day that I asked you this or I threw this at you um, briefly maybe if at all um, so I've noticed something with the way everything's been impacted with COVID and with the way the world's adjusting and the way everything's going I've seen people spend money and make home gyms I've seen people not work out. I've seen myself personally do a shift of, it's nice out, I'm gonna go for a run. I don't need to come to the gym to do this or X amount of work with somebody. Oh, I have enough weights at home. I go to the track, I'll do whatever sprints, get my high intensity, you know, but my brain's kind of shut off, it's running. Yeah. You don't need to be thinking too much. Um, do some heavy stuff, whatever, here and there with the weights I have. But I think the way it's gonna go, and you could agree or disagree, I'm very intrigued to hear your side of this, but gym's almost being becoming obsolete after kind of the way it seemed to be. Like if it's, if it's, an, if it's a priority for you, you'll make it a priority for you, right? Yeah. You said it best earlier, right? Lifestyle. You make it like brush your teeth, wash your hands, go to the bathroom, drink a lot of water, eat meals, move properly, like lift weights, whatever, go to the gym. If that is something that people take seriously, they'll find a way to do it. Yep. Right? And so now we're saying, oh, you can't go to this place to do it? Okay, well, you're still going to do it. You make it work. Right? You buy a bit of extra gym equipment. Well, now you don't need to go to a gym. Yeah. So that's kind of just why I think that that's something that, that's an opinion I've kind of begun to formulate. And I've begun to bounce that off of friends of mine who are in that industry. Right? You now, and perhaps a few weeks ago, or Pat, and then some other friends who I train with here and stuff. It's like, what do you think of this? So, so what I think is going to be, I think what we've realized is there's more ways to be healthy than just going to a gym. Yeah. The removal of the gym <coughs> forced people to do things that they hadn't done. 
So for me, I went from powerlifting yeah. to running. And there aren't two things further from each other in terms of health and wellness than powerlifting and running. Stationarily moving big weights for a few reps to constantly being in motion for hours at a time, mm -hmm. they're polar opposites. I went into running because I read David Goggins and he talked about being uncomfortable. And let me tell you, I hate running. Yeah, it's and I decided love nothing about it. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, I've never got a runner's high. I've just been grateful that whatever that garbage experience was, it is over. Yeah, that's really it. But I've done three half marathons and did them from, did two hours and 15 minutes for my first one. Sorry, two hours and 30 minutes for my first one. Two hours flat in my second one. And then my third one I ran in May untrained, hadn't ran since October, and I did it in two hours and 12 minutes. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go, brother. It felt like garbage. But well, I got her done. No kidding. I think what we've come to realize, and I've thought about this a lot through this whole experience with COVID, is fitness is, is its own realm. Everyone should be pursuing health. And health is taking care of the body. To the same way that you change the oil in your car, you do regular maintenance, that's what health is for, to ensure that the engine keeps going. Mm -hmm. Fitness, I think I've come to realize, is more of uh, a deeper aptitude where it's almost uh, like a job. So now in my mind, everyone should pursue health. And Well, that's always been the case. Everyone should yeah. pursue health, but for the longest time, the gym was the cornerstone of that, that option. That health, yeah. To now we've come to realize, go for a rollerblade, go for a bike, go for a walk, get 10-minute walks, go outside, spend some time in the sunlight, go for a skate. Do these things more often, and I think that we've done a great job through COVID of showing people that you can be healthy without having a gym membership. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, fitness is for the people who take health to an extreme, not right. in a bad way, but powerlifting is taking health to an extreme. Yeah, makes sense. Lifting five, 600 pounds doesn't translate to regular life no, very often. you don't need to. It's a certain aptitude and a certain taste. Right. Having a certain physique isn't necessarily something that everybody needs to have, but there's people who take that to an extreme, and maybe they get into bodybuilding, and, maybe, that. and that's great. They just, they take health so seriously that now it's like a fitness thing. No, it's a, and, yeah. and, and I look at them now a little bit differently, for sure. I think the home gyms are going to dominate. I think people feel more comfortable having it. And I think for the longest time, like people had home gyms before COVID and they didn't want to go because it's too easy. There's too many distractions. But now with work from home, people found a way. They're, now they never leave their house, yeah, so they work. may as well. The, the COVID fear is going to keep people away. Yeah, they dialed it in a bit more, spent a bit more money because it was there. And you weren't traveling, right? Yeah. And, and then the, the big thing here now is we see the benefit. We saw what happened with through COVID that people that were, like in the States, they have a higher overweight and obesity, right? And that's listed through the CBC as a respiratory illness, being overweight, naturally. You go up a set of stairs, you got a few extra pounds, it's hard to breathe. You have 100 extra pounds that's a problem, yeah. right? There's too much stress. So we see that people, our governments have done nothing to try and encourage better health. No. Right? We, got, we got medicine put out, we, we, we had all these different stay-at-homes processes and all this stuff, it's yeah. all fine and dandy. But they haven't done anything to say, why don't we get people more vitamin D because it supports a better immune system and it's an antioxidant. We're certainly mm -hmm. not getting enough in, in North America. Why don't we make gyms um, more affordable? Why don't we increase the education on physical fitness at a younger age to make sure? That, I mean, it, it's one of those things where the dividend pays off. The healthcare system 100%. is coming out of the tax. The tax that we pay into it is a lot because there's a lot of sick people. Mm -hmm. But if you intervene at a younger age and you start to promote better lifestyle habits and better movement, you have less injuries and less ailments down the road. I think people, not as a whole, but a larger population of people saw that being healthier yielded less illness 
and they're gonna they've taken personal ownership. When I was in Ottawa, when all this started, mm-hmm. I have never seen more people walk the canal, walk their dogs, get outside, go for bikes, go for runs. Yes. And I think it's a you weren't, you weren't allowed to leave really and do anything, so that was your opportunity to get out. But yeah. B, we're smart people, and we had an opportunity to slow down for the first time in a hundred years, yeah. and really look at what's going on. And I think the bulk some of the people went, this isn't how I want to live. No. I'm not doing anything for myself. So they adapted. I'll, I'll get That's a walk it. in. I'll I'll get a bit more exercise. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I think the gyms are going to be less popular from a gen pop standpoint. But I think you're going to see people start to take that health thing and shift over to that fitness where it's a little bit more of a focus in their life. Interesting. I don't think gyms are going anywhere. I don't think personal. No, I don't think anymore. they're going to die off. I'm not saying that. I'm not hoping that. Even, no. even obviously, right? Obviously. But it's that community, and that I think is super, super important. And I think you don't. I don't think the gym should close. I just think that should be that uh, that piece that just stays consistent. I think you're right. I don't think they're going anywhere. No. So, Mike, you kind of touched on a bit on how you got into strength training and powerlifting. Now, do you have a favorite moment or memory experience oh, yeah. from powerlifting? Now, when I say that, you're like, oh yeah, like, that's the one. Hundred percent. My the last time I competed was December 2019. Um, Prior to that, uh, I got divorced. Um, Went through like a really tough time with that. And shortly after my divorce, I reached out to my coach, Paul O'Neill, and I told him, oh yeah, great coach if you're looking for something. Um, I told him what was going on, and I was like, I hadn't competed in a while. I was like, I want to get back in this. Um, I was helping a friend open a gym, so I had 24 hours a day access to a, a good quality strength gym. Um, and I was like, I want to do this. Um, and the experience of the training, the stuff that I was able to do was great. It really helped bring me out of like the, the mental vortex that I was in post-divorce. Um, it was, it was really cool. Like if you, like if you follow me on Instagram, um, and you go back, you'll see dozens of posts where I put all of my training blocks basically on there. Um, and that was the only real connection I had. My coach was living in Calgary. Uh, I think at the time, yeah. And so I was training alone a lot, but throughout that, I, I sort of like, it's something I had done. I think I've competed seven or eight times. Nice. This one was just super unique because this is the first time that I used it as a, as a real exploration into like developing mental strength and emotional strength at a time where I was pretty broken through all that. Yeah. Um, and alongside all that, the physical strength came up and that competition was hands down my favorite. So in powerlifting, I mean, some... I'm not a very strong guy relative to power lifters. Okay. The, the tricky thing is, like, with well, Gen Pop, it that if, way. if you tell a, a, an average person, like, you lift four, five, six, seven, or 800 pounds, they have no frame of reference. So that all sounds the same to them. 400 and 800, right. they're like, couldn't do either. That's to me, wild. I'm like, right? Because so, I know how heavy 400 pounds is. Yeah. And so, no more than that. 405? That's a sweet spot. Yeah. So it. relative to a lot of my, my friends that do powerlifting, like they're, I, I have some buddies that are just mutants. Vehicles. Just moving 700 pounds just with no effort. It's stupid. just... Stupid. Yeah. It's So ridiculous. compared to them, I'm not even close. And then what I love about powerlifting is it's not... It's it, You compete against other people in your weight class, but for me it's never been a comparison sport. Right. Um, Ed Cohen, who's the greatest powerlifter of all time, he was, I think, the first guy to squat 1,000 pounds. Anyway, somebody asked him what it was like to squat 1,000 pounds. And he, he asked the kid, he's like, what's your personal best? And the kid said, like, I don't know, 400. He's like, it felt like that. Like, everybody's all-time PR 
feels the same as everybody else's all-time PR. You are doing something your body has not done before. No. Um, that so, is the limit. Push and, yourself to the limit. That's it. And that's the beautiful part of it. It is the numbers are subjective to the individual, but the experience is objective. Everyone's feeling the same thing. And that's what I love about the community. So that being said, not being the strongest guy, when you do a powerlifting meet, they have flights. So set numbers of lifters, and what they try to do is have it so that way their attempts ramp up. So instead of loading and unloading a bar constantly, they'll start at the lightest attempt, and then they'll just keep building up going through the flights. And then for your second attempt, they go back down, so it's easier for the loaders. Interesting. Yeah. That so, makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So this was the first time in my powerlifting career that I was in the first flight, which is typically the weaker individuals, which... It didn't bother me at all. Really I cared for my numbers. Yeah. Um, but it's not like I was lifting like lightweight. Like uh, my my, heavy. my my top end squat was four ninety five. I'm a terrible bench presser and chronically happy. And you talk about having old injuries that you ignore. I fell snowboarding when I was twenty three. Continued to train, did nothing about yeah, it. Probably finished, got up, went down the rest of the hill. But. Yeah, found out yeah. seven years later that I had like damaged my infraspinatus, so obviously I can't do anything properly with my shoulder. So that is my purest excuse for why I'm a terrible bench presser. Um, and then pulled 585. So doing that, I was the last person in the flight. So I was the strongest guy in the flight, which like any of my buddies would be like, that's embarrassing. I don't care. It was such a cool experience because my coach, we flew him in from Calgary. We all paid to get him out there. Right on. He's got, I think at this, this meet, six athletes. Um, this is the first time I decided to hire a photographer for the experience. Nice. Uh, so even the photo that you have is like my like my thing for the yeah. for the podcast. That was dude, one hundred percent. That's sick. It's such a good shot. Oh man, I was like he's got a different look in his eye, man. Like when a shark, like <laughs> when a shark has those like the eyes go black. Oh yeah, and they just got attack mode on. And I see that photo, I'm like. A buddy of mine, real quick, started to cut you off, bro, reached out and was like, dude, looks like a fucking machine. I'm going to follow him, check him out. And I was like, dude, you'll love him. You'll train with him. Uh, he's in Australia right now. Shout out to you, Reese. Fucking love you, dude. He's uh, he's like, man, I reach out. I'm like, dude, you'll love him. He's like, I'm like, yo, I'll get you. I'll set up a train and meet and train or whatever. I was like, oh, if you guys train when you come back. Yeah, he's, a, he's like a really, he's a strong guy, good bodybuilder. But I think like if you tweaked one or two of his techniques, he could just be a fucking vehicle, man. Beautiful. So really, yeah, really, like, really cool guy. So. Yeah. So but, yeah, just uh, hit numbers sorry. that I've been chasing. No, sorry. Hit numbers that I've been chasing for a long time. Nice. Um, had a great experience with the teammates and the coach. Um, you know, at, at the end of it, uh, there's a picture where my coach is giving me a big hug, um, and it was just—it was so important to feel a part of something again after mm-hmm. going through a divorce, where you feel alone, alone, you're separated. There's. There's this sense of like disposal, like this is over, something didn't work, one of us, like it's a shitty feeling. Yeah, I can only imagine. And so getting into it and there were times through the training where like I'd be training at three in the morning. I am opening this. I'm, I was opening this gym with, with a buddy of mine and I had the key and there'd be nights where like I just couldn't sleep. I'd go in the gym, I'd be the only one there, I'd get there at 11, I'd fuck around for an hour. I'd start lifting, I'd be done at three, I'd still hang out, you know, it it, it, it was a tough time, but getting through that whole experience and doing this meet, my last deadlift with my favorite, pulled 585, I think my best before that was 560, (laughs) so like, that was a big number for me. Oh man. I ripped it off the floor, and like I said, to regular people, they're just numbers, they mean nothing. That's heavy. To me, that last deadlift was the, the culmination of that dark time that I had been through, I love deadlifting. I think there's nothing more primitive and primal than just ripping yeah. something up off the floor and moving it where you want it to go. And, like, ah! and it, it takes a level of yeah. intensity it's and a, a level of focus. 
Um, and it flew. Like, relative to a third attempt, it flew. Nice. And when, awesome. I, when I put it back down, I, like, I did the Rocky, just lifted the arms up, yeah. and it was literally, I felt like I was just, like, like I had all of the shit I had dealt I with for the last four months, too. and I was like, fuck all that. Yeah. That's all behind me. This is all new. Right on. Um, it's like a hey. stepping stone to... Yeah. Hands oh, down, man. that was my favorite experience. That's um, amazing. Yeah, the, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of emotional weight. It sounds like too. Yeah, it was bigger than a powerlifting meet for sure. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, that is incredible, and I I love that because it's not like one. It like it was a culmination of the perfect storm that led up, like a perfect shit storm that led up to that crazy PR, and just such a lift up weight off your shoulders. <laughs> Pun intended. Yeah, I can do this all day, man. Yeah. My puns are. I'm here for it. But that's just, that's incredible, man. And I think that's something that I really, I admire that story and you being able to tell it that way because that's, you took something so emotionally devastating and probably draining, took that time period and you build from the rock bottom up into that. And then between opening up, and it wasn't just like that was the one thing going on. So you probably had a bunch of different things because life has a way of going, you either have nothing really going on or you have all these things that need to get done and it's just well you're coasting or it's you're moving out you're trying to get a new vehicle you're trying to do this you're trying to do that you're trying to work more you're trying to run a business you got all these things happening that I'm like if you can get through this the shit storms need to happen for major growth absolutely right and I think those if you're allowed to take those and channel that into something the potential is just astronomical, and hearing that from you is just—it's inspiring, dude. It really is. To sound like corny or whatever. No, that's like really inspiring. That's a really cool like experience. So, with that being said, as you kind of like wrap up the show, do you have like a final like it could be quote or advice or piece of information or an experience that you want to kind of embark or sorry impart on somebody? Yeah. Or like. Uh, yeah, I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, and it, it's, you know, still a young guy, 30. Um, I, I've lived a life that I don't think most people in their 50s and 60s have had to deal with. Like, I've lost a parent, I've lost a sibling, I've gone through a divorce, I've had major life changes throughout that time. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the heartache, you have the hard times. Um, what I've come to realize is you can't be afraid of hard times, and you have to remind yourself that every difficult time you've ever been through, you've been through. You got That's a good through. point. Well, wow. and it's again when you come back to journaling, it's so important to be reminded of your successes because we know they've done tests. Um, the third place winner of a race feels better than the second place because losing impacts you more than winning does. We know that bad news is heavier than good news. It's why we 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 are always chasing something new. Mm. I believe in a concept of necessary traumas. Mm. I don't think that everybody should have to go through the stuff that I've gone through at such a young age, but I do know that the hard times that we go through is what shapes our character and our ability to survive in a world that is complicated, that is very difficult, but it's only as difficult as we accept it to be. Mm -hmm. If you... Oh man, this just came back to me. There's a there's a poet named uh, David Foster Wallace. Yeah. And he has a thing called um, "This Is Water," 
and it's a commencement speech he did for a university. And go watch it. It's stunning. It's 20 minutes. David and you Foster get, Wallace. David Foster Wallace, This Is Water. You can watch it every six months and every time pick something else from it. But one point that he makes is everybody worships. Some people choose religion. Some people choose money. Some people choose looks. But he talks about if you choose to worship money, you'll always feel poor. If you choose to worship appearance, Whoa. you'll always feel ugly. ugly yeah. Like we're always chasing something. And I think that that is the, the downside to not experiencing traumas. We live a life of immortality until we're reminded that this is temporary for us. Mm -hmm. And when I lost my dad, I watched somebody who for 49 years of his life wanted to live the chronological checklist of like, you get the great job, you get the house, you get the family, you, you save up for retirement, you do this. And then after he was sick, none of that stuff mattered. Now it was, now I'm gonna take the time to travel. Now I'm going to start changing the way that I do things. Interesting. Uh, but we hear about that oftentimes, right? People live a certain way, they're reminded of mortality, and then they change what they accept as qualities of life. Our boundaries become much tighter when we realize that this is temporary. Mm -hmm. And so going through traumas only helps shape your boundaries in life and understand that this time's temporary, we need to make the most out of it, don't work 45 years to enjoy 10, minutes of, uh, 10 years of retirement. Like, it's so important that we, we face these traumas and look at them as opportunities for new perspective. Don't seek a life of simplicity, or else you're just going to be a very simple person. And that doesn't sound very exciting. No, not at all. No. I love that. I love that a lot. And I think there, as you say that, there's a quote that kind of reminded me or a piece in a conversation of a podcast I was listening to way back when. And it was, there's, we, and I might be wrong, but we live, a man has two lives, and the first one, and the second one begins when he realizes he only has one. Yeah. And I was like, it's very true. you saying that, I'm like, that was it. Yeah. That was just, wow. That's, uh, that's heavy, but that's really, um, yeah. <laughs> Wait, what you said, brother, like, I can't, I can't add to that, that's. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than that. So, where, uh, with that being said, where uh, can people, where can people find you? Where can people be treated by you? Work with you? Train with you? Get uh, rolling out the red carpet for you and uh, <laughs> yeah. say what you will. So uh, you can get me at uh, Active Therapy uh, in Sudbury um, for the fascial stretch therapy on Instagram. I'm Mike Germain FST. Um, you know, reach out in any way, shape, or form if it's about training. Uh, if it's about the experiences that I talked about, if you're going through similar stuff, um, yeah, those are the best spots there. Right on, brother. Well, with that being said, I'm super grateful that I met you, super grateful <laughs> that you're able to come in and share your story and uh, teach me some things, and uh, we were able to have a, what I think is a pretty good conversation today. Great time. So, appreciate it, brother. Thanks Always. so much, man. All right.